This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about real estate investing. More specifically, we're talking about investing in real estate using tax-deferred retirement savings. While the COVID-19 pandemic has created a financial crisis for some, others have never felt more rich, financially at least. For some households, savings account balances are at an all-time high, and although most retirement account balances took a sharp nosedive early last year when the coronavirus outbreak caused economic shockwaves all over the world, Those who stayed the course have now bounced back entirely, according to the latest data from Fidelity Investments. In fact, according to Fidelity's annual retirement survey, the number of 401k and IRA millionaires has hit an all-time record high in 2021. According to data collected at the end of the first quarter of 2021, the number of Fidelity 401k accounts with a balance of 1 million or more jumped to 365,000 while the number of IRA account holders with a million or more in assets was up to 307,000, also an all-time high. And that's just one of the many brokerage firms offering both 401k and IRA accounts to the masses. For many of the retirement savers who are fortunate enough to find themselves sitting on seven-figure account balances, the question that comes up somewhat frequently is, what else? Meaning, what else is there to invest those dollars in besides the traditional target date, stock, or bond mutual funds that anyone who participates in a workplace retirement plan has access to? Well, it may or may not surprise you to find out that the answer is plenty. Depending on the source of those funds and the rules governing your specific company's retirement plan, you may be able to invest some of those dollars into a McDonald's franchise, cryptocurrency, art, precious metals, a tech startup, an apartment building. God knows what else. And while those are all investment avenues I'm always excited to dig in on and read up on personally, I am by no means an expert on any of them. So I decided to call up someone I know who lives in this world day in and day out and have a conversation. Patrick Hagan is a national director for Strata Trust, one of the nation's leading self-directed IRA custodians. He's been working in this space for over 17 years and even teaches a class now on how to properly use self-directed IRAs to gain exposure to the myriad of investments out there. Needless to say, Patrick is a bit of an expert in this space. So with that brief introduction, welcome Patrick Hagan to the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. So to get us started off, Patrick, I breezed through your resume 
pretty quickly in my intro. What did I miss there? I think in our space, it's such a unique industry because we see alternative investments, things that most investors are not accustomed to putting inside of their tax-deferred retirement account. And you kind of don't know what you don't know until you get in there and do it. So I've worked mm -hmm. with over 10,000 clients in my career. I've seen an array of different uh, private equity investments, real estate investments, precious metal investments, you name it. So I think uh, just being in the arena for as long as I have been has allowed me to kind of figure out not only what's out there, but also you don't know what you don't know until it comes up in conversation. So just the experience factor, I think is key. Working with a company that has experience, working with professionals that have experience in the space, because it is kind of a niche industry, I think that's super critical. Fair enough. So I imagine folks listening to this might be a little confused by the terminology, right? Since the term self-directed gets thrown around quite a bit in the investment world. So to get us started, can you simply define what a self-directed IRA is and isn't in this context? Yeah, most importantly, I want to establish that an IRA is an IRA, whether it's with Fidelity invested in mutual funds or it's with Strata invested in alternatives. The core of the IRA, the essence of the IRA is the same. So the same tax features, the same contribution limits, same distribution rules, nothing changes with the quote unquote self-directed piece. So self-directed is really just a descriptive term, which basically establishes that the individual is picking the investments, not the IRA custodian. So the self-directed provider, Strata Trust or whoever the client's working with is not going to sell product. We're not gonna recommend product. We're basically gonna take investment instructions, push the paper to make it happen, and then hold that investment as custodian going forward. So that's what makes the arrangement a self-directed arrangement because the client is the self in the self-directed IRA. They are dictating what the IRA is going to invest in, when they're gonna invest, when they're gonna sell. It's up to the custodian to basically make sure it's a permissible investment for the IRA to hold and then to execute and hold it. So that's really what distinguishes us from the large banks and brokerage firms that predominantly work with uh, securities, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, et cetera. But a Robinhood trading account is self-directed. So why can't I just buy a piece of real estate in my Robinhood account instead of going this route? Yeah, different version is self-directed. So self-directed in the sense that they allow you to pick and choose the equities that you want to hold inside of the account. But administratively, they're not going to allow you to hold a piece of real estate or a private placement or a venture capital fund. That's not an asset class that they're interested in holding for their IRA clients. It's not that they technically couldn't. They could. Sure. It's just institutionally, they elect not to. It's the same with any bank or brokerage firm, Fidelity, Vanguard, Schwab, et cetera. Schwab has self-directed accounts. You can pick mm -hmm. and choose individual investments or mutual funds, but they're not going to allow you to hold a piece of real estate or a venture capital fund or any other kind of private placement. So it's really the limitations that most people feel are not IRS limitations when it comes to the retirement plan options, but more institutional limitations. And because the large banks and brokerage firms kind of control the majority of the retirement plan wealth, Mm -hmm. A lot of people are just accustomed to what they do. So they don't even realize that these unique alternative investments are out there. Good stuff. So in my intro, right, I mentioned that as a means to help people diversify their portfolios away from traditional asset classes, I, I mentioned a whole bunch of them, right? And what I'm really focused on here is helping people introduce non-correlated assets into their portfolio, meaning assets that don't move based on what the publicly traded stock or bond markets are doing on a day-to-day -day basis, right? And the way it stands today, I can use a self-directed IRA to invest, as I said, in a McDonald's franchise, some other kind of business, maybe a tech startup of some sort, 
even a neighborhood restaurant concept that I know and love and believe in, right? I can use it to invest in a real estate project, residential, commercial real estate. Like what else can I use it to invest in that I didn't mention in, in my list? Yeah, so there's really only two things the IRS specifies as uh, impermissible investments, and that's life insurance and collectibles. Life insurance for its own reasons, but collectibles are things like work of art, antiques, rugs, stamps, gems, coins, things of that sort. Those are specifically itemized as prohibited for an IRA to hold. So anything that's an investment that you're holding for investment purposes that doesn't fall into one of those two categories is probably something that you could consider for your IRA. Now, in my world, I see typically investors coming on to buy one of four types of investments, real estate, private mm -hmm. equity, private debt, and precious metals. Private equity is a very loose term because it could be a $20 million venture capital fund with a $50,000 minimum buy-in, or it could be a group of three people putting together an LLC to buy a commercial property. Mm -hmm. So there's different categories of what we would consider private placement, private equity. But when you look at the majority of what we see, it's real estate, private equity, private debt, and precious metals. And occasionally you'll see something that's completely unique that's a little bit more out of left field. But most of what we see coming across our desk is going to fit into one of those four categories. So you mentioned collectibles. I want to go back to that real quick. Does that mean that if I bought one of these NFTs, I keep seeing floating across the screen all of a sudden, that can't be bought in the self-directed IRA? Is that way too new for there to even be an answer yet? Help me out with NFT. What is that? The non-fungible token. So, you know, oh, I, token. I take yeah. a meme so, off, off Twitter and turn it into a token. I think that technically counts as a collectible, but it also is tradable because it's a token. So I, I don't know. Yeah, if it was considered a collectible, what you'd want to look at there is how does the IRS distinguish that asset class? Are they considering sure. it a collectible or is it a commodity or is it like, a, like for example, you could technically buy Bitcoin through an IRA or you could buy mm -hmm. Ethereum through an IRA. Institutionally, we don't personally invest or we don't hold crypto accounts, but there are other companies sure. in our space that do. So if you want to buy some Ether through an IRA, you could do that. If it's something that's truly a collectible item, uh, work of art, collectible coin, an old coin off a pirate ship from the 1800s or something, that would definitely be something you want to keep out of the IRA because anything that has a collectible nature to it could fall under that collectible status. And when you look at IRC 4975, it specifically says collectibles are not to be put inside of an IRA. So that's kind of how I would default there is how does the IRS view it? How would they tax it? If there's a gain, are they looking at it as a collectible item or is it an investment? Is it like, for example, Gold and silver, since I think like the early 90s, you've been able to buy and hold gold and silver inside of an IRA. Mm -hmm. And it's perfectly acceptable if you meet the finest requirements that the IRS has specified. So that's really what you want to look at there. Is it truly a collectible item? And if so, you probably do not want to try to hold that inside of your IRA. With all that said, though, is it safe to say that real estate is really the most common use of these types of accounts? I would say that historically, that's probably accurate. When I got into space mm -hmm. 16, 17 years ago, it was mostly people buying real estate. Today, a lot more of what I'm seeing is private placement, private equity, venture capital hmm. type activity. Okay. These individuals that are looking, as you indicated, for non-correlated alternative investments, they want some exposure to kind of a high risk, high reward asset class. 
Venture capital provides that. It is a diversification piece, so they're not putting the majority of their retirement wealth into it, but they do want some exposure to that asset class, and so that's when they come over to a self-directed IRA. I think for a long time, self-directed IRA kind of equated to real estate IRA, but it's really branched out quite a bit now. I think right now, private equity, then real estate, then private debt, and then the fourth would be some kind of precious metal type activity. Okay, good to know. So one of the more common misconceptions out there among financial professionals like myself is the idea that you can't own an asset inside of the account that you also have some sort of control over. So as I was talking about real estate being the more popular use that I've seen that I've come across in here, and you just kind of set me straight there that folks have kind of turned the tide to other business activities, but can you clear that up for me? Let's say I purchase, you know, a single family home with self-directed IRA money. What can I and what can't I do with respect to that property? Yeah, so an investment inside of a retirement plan needs to be held strictly for investment purposes. And Mm -hmm. uh, the account holder and their direct lineal relatives should not personally benefit from that asset. So if you're talking about a rental house, you cannot live in the rental house. You can't vacation in the rental house. And that applies Mm -hmm. to you, your spouse, your lineal ascendant and lineal descendant. So your children, your grandchildren, etc. So those individuals are defined as disqualified persons per the IRS code and disqualified persons cannot utilize an investment that's held inside of your tax deferred retirement account. So -hmm. if you're going to buy a rental house, you can rent it, but you can't rent it to your daughter or your son. You would have to lease it to an unrelated party who would then make payments back to your individual retirement account. So this is not meant for vacation homes, second homes, even personal use just a couple weeks out of the year would still not Mm -hmm. be allowed. It's strictly an investment held for investment purposes. Now, in respect to buying into a company, you'd have to look at there. If you own or control that company today, you would not want to invest your IRA into the company. So Mm -hmm. that applies to you and the same direct lineal relative. So if your son has a business and he's raising capital, your IRA should not invest in your son's business because that would be a violation of the rules. But if you're making an acquisition to a private placement into a non-related individual's company, if you're buying into a fund that you don't personally own, manage, or control, or if you're buying a rental house that's going to be strictly an investment or a piece of land as an investment, those are all perfectly acceptable investments to put inside of an IRA. And one other note is you're not allowed to take something that you own personally and shift it into your retirement plan. So if you own a property today, there's no way to tuck that into your account now you'd have to go out and buy a new investment as a first-time acquisition through the ira and and hold that then going forward i'm glad actually that you said that one because i could see some crafty wheels turning to try and figure out how to get uh your current portfolio in there and maybe buy it back from yourself or something something fanciful like that there's a term called self-dealing and and basically it says pretty clear terms in the code you cannot buy sell exchange or lease an investment from a disqualified person to uh an ira and so what i always encourage people to understand is that with the irs uh, the creativity doesn't really do much for them. If you, if they say you can't do something, you can't do it. Right. So I've had people come up with these ideas of, let me sell it to my neighbor and I'll buy it back from yep. the IRA. It's a bad idea, right? If you can figure out what you're doing in the event of an audit, the IRS is going to figure it out as well. And I think it's just something you steer clear of. There's only a handful of guidelines in the IRS code and mm-hmm. it's kind of their sandbox. You got to play by their guidelines. But there are plenty of perfectly legitimate transactions you can do without even coming close to a prohibited transaction. So we're pretty conservative by nature, and so am I. And so I generally tell people to steer clear of anything that seems like it might be a prohibited transaction. 
So you mentioned, though, that I can't have uh, direct ownership, direct control. I guess I can't be the CEO of the company that I'm using my IRA funds to invest in. But what about being on the company's board or if it's a house that I'm flipping? Like, can I have a conversation with my foreman or my general contractor to direct how we're going to design and build the house? Or is that even a bridge too far? Yes, I'll answer both those because they're kind of distinct questions regarding the house. The second question you are in control of deciding what you're going to do. So there's no mm -hmm. issue with you using your brain to make decisions and direction as to what's going to take place. That's no different than me sitting down at the computer and buying or selling a stock. So brain power is not a problem. It's sweat equity that is going to be a concern. You should not go out there and start knocking down walls or putting in mm -hmm. carpet or putting up a fence. That's something you need to contract out to an unrelated party and have them do and pay for with the individual retirement account. But if there's a GC on the project and you want to communicate with them about your desires and wishes for the property, that's absolutely okay. In fact, it's almost inherently understood that has to be the case because okay. if you're not directing what's going on, who is, right? It's the self and the self-directed IRA that's determining what they're doing. You just want to make sure that from a fund standpoint and a paperwork standpoint, everything is kind of arm's length and that you're not in there actually physically doing anything related to that property. You've got that independent uh, third-party GC or contractor or management company that's really pulling the strings, but you're the one that's telling them what your desires are for that property. To the question about investing in a company that you're personally involved with, there's two thresholds. One is uh, a 50% threshold. If you own or control 50% or more of a company mm -hmm. or an entity, you cannot invest your IRA to that company or entity. If you're an officer of the company, and the way it's defined as officer, director, or somebody filling the role of officer or director, mm -hmm. then the benchmark falls down to 10%. So hypothetically, you sit on the board of directors, you're an officer of a company. If you own or control more than 10% of that company, we would say that's probably not a viable transaction for the IRA to take part in, and we'd probably have you petition for a private letter ruling or an attorney's opinion letter before we did that transaction. So typical John Doe off the street who doesn't have any control or ownership or director position, it's a 50% threshold in ownership. If it's an officer or director, it drops down to 10. So if I understand correctly, though, just to, to put a finer point on this, there are certain activities that can create UBTI inside of these types of accounts, which is income taxable in the year earned instead of being deferred until distribution like IRA assets traditionally are. Can you say a bit about that? Yeah. So there's two, two scenarios where the UBIT is going to come into the picture. One is if you own an operating business that has a direct pass through of operating income back to your IRA. So if mm -hmm. my IRA goes out and buys a bar and grill and that bar and grill sells beer and hot dogs, et cetera, and makes a profit, and that profit comes back to my IRA, essentially I'm running a business through my tax-deferred individual retirement account. Mm -hmm. So in order to okay. level the playing field so that you don't have an advantage over the person down the street who has a bar and grill that they pay business income tax on, you have to pay the unrelated business income tax on the earnings from that business. So the intent of an IRA typically is not to buy an operating business, but rather to make passive investments to grow over time, whether it's publicly traded or privately held but those are more passive investments. So if an individual is buying into a private LLC or a venture capital fund or even a startup company, in most cases, the UBIT's not going to be applicable. But if the IRA mm -hmm. is buying into an entity that has a direct pass-through, like an LLC that kicks off a K-1 and it flows out operating income back to the IRA, 
then the unrelated business income tax does need to be accounted for. It doesn't mean you don't do the transaction. It just means that you're aware that it's not completely tax deferred, that there's this other factor in play. The other side of UBIT is when you debt leverage real estate. So if you go out and you buy a property for cash and you get income from that, the income comes back tax deferred. If you buy a property and you use debt, you get a loan from a bank to acquire an investment property through your IRA. There is going to be a split between your basis that the IRA put out and the profit from the bank borrowed money. And there is the potential for the profit from the bank borrowed money to kick off unrelated debt financed income tax. But there's typically a lot of write-offs that you can use to kind of deplete or remove that. So it's mm -hmm. less of a factor than when you're buying an operating business like the bar and grill, for example. But it is something to be aware of. It's something to consider before diving in. If you're making cash acquisitions, then you don't have to worry about it. If you're mm -hmm. buying passively into an entity and there's not operating income coming back, then you probably don't have to worry about it. But these are things that are out there. We can have a discussion. You can speak to your CPA in advance of making the investment. It doesn't mean you don't do it. It just means you're aware of what could be applied to your IRA down the road. So I'm going to turn the tide just a little bit, because last time you and I talked, I mentioned to you that I was noticing, you know, a trend where many of our clients, because they tend to be high earners, right? They're making maximum contributions to their 401ks year after year. And they also tend to work for companies who have a generous matching policy, right? And so it's not uncommon for folks in their 50s and 60s to have 401k balances well above a million dollars, right? And so in some instances, depending on what the rest of their balance sheet looks like, it could make sense to take a portion of those tax deferred uh, retirement funds to invest in that business idea or real estate project that they're interested in rather than cash or some other sort of investment account that they have, right? So with that personal profile in mind, how do you actually fund a self-directed IRA? And also how long does it take to do it? Yeah, so the process of establishing the account is typically only one day. That's very simple. Uh, most companies in our space have an online app, so you just fill it out, open up the mm -hmm. account. The part that takes a little bit of time is getting the money pulled from wherever it is now over to the self-directed IRA. So if the money's in an individual retirement account, it's going to be moved as an IRA to IRA transfer. That's going to mm -hmm. be generated with a transfer document from the receiving firm who's going to go pull the cash from the contra firm. If it's a rollover from a qualified plan, the plan's going to have their own document that the participant completes to tell them to issue a check as a rollover to the new IRA. So if it's an old 401k, you can move that money at any time for any reason because you have that triggering event that you've left the job and that money is free to move. If it's an active 401k, then you really need to check with your plan provider to find out if and how that money can be moved because there are times when those active 401k plans can be somewhat inherently restrictive when it comes to moving money out. But a lot of folks have IRA money. Yeah, IRA money can be moved at any time for any reason. An old qualified plan can be moved. And so it's only the individual that has all of their money tied up in their active plan. It might be a little bit restricted. But to answer your question about timing, it varies from institution to institution. I generally tell people to gauge for about a week and a half to two weeks to get the account fully funded. It may come over in two or three days. It may take two full weeks, but somewhere in that range, we typically see the cash come in. And it's not uncommon at all for us to know what the client's going to buy before their cash comes in. So literally we get the money. We already have the investment. We turn mm -hmm. around the following day and send it out. And so the three-step process would be to establish the account, fund the account with the transfer slash rollover, and then direct the investment for the self-directed IRA. 
So in the estimation, the time estimation you just gave me, is that a week, two weeks, four weeks? I'd give it at least two weeks. It could be done in one week. It could take three weeks. It shouldn't take four weeks. Uh, Something's Mm -hmm. wrong if it takes more than two or three weeks to get to cash. But just because the money could be coming out of a larger firm and their turn time is going to be their turn time, we don't have any ability to tell Fidelity to get us to cash tomorrow. They're going to send us the check when they send us the check or send us the wire when they send the wire. So I generally tell people start to finish, give it about two weeks. If it shows up in a week, that's gravy. If not, at least you've got that time frame to make sure we have all of our ducks in a row for the purchase. Because what we don't want is an investment that's ready to fund. We have the investment direction from the client, but we don't have the cash to send out, right? The title company's waiting on the cash from us, or maybe they're trying to close a private fund and we can't get the money out to them. Those are situations we try to alleviate by giving proper expectations on the front end and making sure that everybody involved knows what's involved with getting that cash over to us. You touched on something else that I want to circle back to make sure that I didn't inadvertently mislead anybody. So where you were talking about the ease of rolling over the funds from an IRA into the self-directed versus the 401k plan that the person maybe is still participating in, that's a really good differentiator, right? So I can speak to this with some level of experience since our company does design and manage a number of corporate retirement plans. The two places that you get the flexibility to move funds out of uh, a plan that you're currently participating in are either after you've hit 59 and a half and the company allows what's called an in-service withdrawal, meaning you have reached a certain age that the company feels that you're old enough to make your own decisions. I know it sounds crazy, but that's the verbiage that they use. You're now old enough to make your own decisions. And if you want to move your money out of the plan while still working there, uh, you should be responsible enough to know what to do with it. The second option is rolling out funds that you rolled into it from another company's plan. So if you worked for, you know, Exxon as an example, and you uh, accumulated $200,000 into the plan, then you went and took a job working for Microsoft and you rolled that $200,000 into Microsoft's uh, 401k plan. You then could still roll that 200,000 back out at any point you decided to free and clear whether you're working at Microsoft or not. Those are the two instances that as a rule of thumb, you have free and clear access to uh, the funds inside of your uh, company's 401k plan where you're working. So I just wanted to make sure that I didn't say that in such general terms that people were now expecting that no matter what, they should be able to tap into their 401k plan at the company they work for to go and invest in that next new startup. So anyway, but so we established that you can roll funds from 401k plan, traditional IRA to fund this self-directed IRA. Can I use Roth IRA assets too, to fund one of these? Yeah, absolutely. We have Roth accounts. I don't know the exact percentage. I'd guess somewhere around 40% of our accounts are Roth accounts. When the income limit for Roth conversions was lifted about 10 years ago, a lot of people took advantage of that and converted pre-tax traditional funds to the Roth account. So even when they had high income in that year, they were able to make that switch and get into a Roth. But yeah, we have quite a few clients that hold Roth accounts. Obviously, the benefit of the Roth tax-free as opposed to tax-deferred. As long as you have the account for five years and you hold it until you're 59 and a half, the earnings in the Roth IRA are going to be tax-free, whereas in a traditional environment, it's a uh, tax-deferred situation. So certainly advantages to the Roth IRA if you qualify and you get money into Mm -hmm. the Roth. But from a functional standpoint, it's going to run exactly the same. A self-directed traditional and a self-directed Roth are going to look very similar, just different tax treatment on the outside. 
Let's spend a little bit more time on that because I want to make sure the big idea here is clear. So uh, by buying those assets inside of a self-directed IRA, right, I'm able to sell my interest in it later on down the road, presumably for a profit, whether a business or a piece of real estate or private credit or something else. And the entire proceeds of the transaction remain deferred from tax from taxation until the day I make an account withdrawal. Is that right or am I oversimplifying here? Yes, yeah, so no, you're basically in a tax deferred bubble inside of an IRA. You can buy and sell assets. When you sell the investment, there's no capital gain because you're underneath that umbrella of the IRA. So you do that over the course of your life. And at some point down the road at 59 and a half or older, you start to take distributions. You don't have to take distributions until 70 and a half, but you're eligible at 59 and a half or older. With a traditional IRA distribution, you would pay tax at ordinary income rates whenever you take that money out. With a Roth, a qualified Roth distribution, you can take the money out and there will not be any taxes because you paid the tax up front. To mm -hmm. use an analogy, with a Roth IRA, you pay tax on the seed, but not on the crop, right? With a traditional IRA, you paid on the crop at the end. And so I think with a Roth IRA, you can, if it qualifies, think of that as your earnings being tax-free, whereas inside of a traditional or a SEP or a simple IRA, it would be tax deferred. You're deferring the tax until some later point upon withdrawal when you take that money out. At that point, you'll pay ordinary income tax. Got it. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that for anybody who's listening, it's abundantly clear what the advantage to even doing it this way is in the first place. And it probably yeah. was, but I just, I like to be clear because the goal here is to, to help close the information gap is much as possible from one guy talking into a microphone on a podcast. So, but let's talk about valuation for a moment. That's another key component here, right? If I own an asset in my IRA, I need to be able to report an account value to the IRS every year, especially if I'm somebody who's in that 72 and a half or older camp and I'm required to take a minimum distribution every year, right? How do you value the assets or uh, assets in my account? And how often is that valuation conducted? Yeah, so it is unique. Obviously, a stock that trades daily, you have on an index, you can figure out what a publicly traded stock is worth on any given day. An alternative investment by nature is going to be a little bit more challenging to value, which is one of the reasons why the brokerage world doesn't like to hold this asset class. We are only required to get an updated value once a year from every investor that we have an investment in their self-directed account. And the way that we handle that is we'll typically go to the investment sponsor. If it's a fund or an investment that's, uh, if you invested in private capital, the investment sponsor would be the one to be able to tell us what that investment is worth. And it could be that it's still at the cost value. Maybe they haven't changed in value. It's not uncommon for a venture capital fund, for example, or a startup company or a private bank stock to not trade all that much, not go up or down for the first couple of years. So it could be that a $50,000 investment is still valued at 50,000, but we are gonna reach out to the sponsor and try to get that updated value for any client that holds that investment. If we don't get a response from the sponsor, then we'll go to the client and then they can either go to the sponsor or go to an independent party to get the valuation. In respect to real estate, typically it's gonna be a broker's opinion letter. So mm -hmm. in today's world, real estate professionals, they have an app on their phone they punch in an address and it pulls up comps that have sold in the last 90 days and it spits sure. out a general number. That's a comp that gives you a value of what your asset is worth. So once a year, we'll get a printout of something like that and put it in the file and we'll update the QCIP value in our system. So it's not an exact science because it is an alternative investment. There is a, a little bit of, of leeway there as to interpreting how and when that value needs to be provided. But we mm -hmm. can't just have an investment at cost basis 
forever. We have to have some kind of value. And our policy is to get that at least once every 12 months from every investor that we have in our system. And typically we'll lean on independent parties that are involved with the investment that can provide that with ease to us so that that checks the box from our perspective and the client's perspective. Awesome. And another sort of technical question here, but I understand there's a difference between the two terms we've used so far and it's, a, it's an asset custodian and an administrator when it comes to self-directed IRAs. What's the difference between the two? Yeah. So a custodian is a regulated trust uh, company that, that's mm -hmm. regulated very similar to a banking institution. And so that's filed with a particular state, whatever state they charter in, and they have to operate as a trust company, as a regulated financial institution. An IRA administrator, I mean, frankly, IRA administrators are becoming a thing of the past. There are very few IRA administrators that are still left in our space. It was kind of something where they kind of came on the scene. They were relatively unregulated. The regulators caught wind of that and started pressuring these companies to either merge with a custodian or become their own custodians, file their own Got trust it. charter. So you don't see a lot of record keepers slash administrators left in the space. But for my personal views, I've worked for both administrators and custodians. And there is a fundamental difference internally on how things are handled. A custodian is going to be a much more highly regulated, sound operation than you would find with an administrator in most cases. Because the administrator essentially is just providing record-keeping services on behalf of a custodian that they have a relationship with. But that could be as simple as just a piece of paper they have drafted up, a contract. But if there's a disconnect there between what the administrator is doing and what the custodian is doing, it can create a real headache for the client at the end of the day. So my two cents is there's plenty of companies in our space that are viable, active, reputable, that are set up as IRA custodians work mm -hmm. with one of those companies. I don't see right now, I, I would say within the next two years maximum, I think the administrators are going to go away because I think mm -hmm. the regulators caught wind of the fact that. They're pointing to the custodian, the custodian's pointing to the administrator, and really no one's holding that regulatory responsibility. So yeah. I think there are plenty of companies now that, that do this appropriately that I think you can partner with and work with. So we've been, we've spent the last however many minutes we've been recording talking about all the goodies, the good side of utilizing the, the self-directed IRA. And I mean, there's plenty, but the tax deferral is probably the biggest, best piece of the, the whole thing. But what would you say are some of the risks of owning and utilizing a self-directed IRA in comparison to, you know, the more traditional investment account structures that we're more familiar with? Well, there's a couple of risks. I mean, one thing is just the inherent illiquidity of these alternative investments, right? If you want yeah. to sell a mutual fund or a stock, you can do that. If you get in a financial pitch, pinch, you can always divest out of that pretty quickly. If you buy into a startup company and want to get your money back, you either have to work with the company or you have to sell it to a third party. Same mm -hmm. thing with real estate generally is a little bit less liquid than a mutual fund or stock. So there's that piece of it. The other side of it is the client is the determining party as to what that investment is going to be. And so it's not up to the custodian to determine whether it's a good investment. It's up to the custodian to determine whether it's a legally permissible investment for an IRA to take part in. So mm -hmm. we, like most of the companies in our space, do a little bit of review on the investment sponsor and the officers involved with the investment itself to make sure that they don't have a track record with the SEC or the FBI, make sure they're not bad apples. 
But at the end of the day, we're not looking at the investment and determining that it is a good investment for the client to take part in. That's sure. what they are determining on their own to determine, is this going to pan out and what do I anticipate the return to be and when, et cetera. So th- that's good and bad. I mean, the upside of a self-directed IRA is you have unlimited options as to what you want to put your money into short of collectibles and life insurance. The downside is you're solely responsible for analyzing (laughs) those investments and making those decisions. So if you have an account with a brokerage firm, you've got an advisor and they're going to sell you a product that's probably a large publicly traded mutual fund. And there's a lot of smart people that have looked at what's inside of that fund. And so you've kind of got probably less upside potential, but a little more security in the fact that you're hiring smart people for their professional expertise. With a self-directed IRA, most of the stuff that we see is unique, it's alternative, it's non-correlated, and it's all directed by the client. But that being said, a lot of our clients know what they want to do. They just Mm -hmm. need a vehicle by which to do it. So I don't bump up against a lot of investors that are looking to buy real estate or looking to buy venture capital or startup companies that have no idea what they're doing or no experience in the space. Most of my clients are pretty seasoned in what they're doing. They're just now electing to utilize the IRA to make it happen. So they're the expert in that arena. They're just using us as a custodian to passively make the investment and hold it as the custodian going forward. And so it's not really, it's not quite as risky as maybe somebody might think if they look at this self-directed space and think, well, you're getting into something you don't fully understand. I don't ever convince anybody to buy alternative investments through a retirement plan. What I tell them is if you want to buy an alternative investment through a retirement plan, I'd love to partner with you as custodian and make that happen. But you have to decide what you want to do and what you're comfortable with and what your long-term plans are with that retirement account and then direct the custodian to facilitate accordingly. But it is unique. It is different. But what I've seen recently is that with what's going on globally and in the markets, I think a lot of people are very drawn to alternative, non-correlated, unique investments that are not tied to the market. March of 2020 wasn't that long ago, and I took a hit, you took a hit, we all took a hit. And fortunately, like you indicated at the start of the podcast, it came back, but those things happen in the publicly traded markets, Mm -hmm. and uh, there's a lot of factors that can make that happen. So I think getting stuff out of that into something that's not going to flow directly with the Dow Jones is, is always appealing. Fair enough. So my final question has absolutely nothing to do with self-directed IRAs. So you can take a breath and and sit back for this one. So let's imagine for a moment that you never heard about the idea of self-directed IRAs and you never heard of Stratatrust, right? So you had to choose a totally different career path, but money wasn't a factor in your decision at all. What do you think you'd be doing right now? Yeah, I I would probably be a coach and and I would I'd preach on the weekend. I, I run hmm. a, a monthly church group. Actually, I run like a monthly podcast or weekly podcast where I uh, give micro sermons, five, six minute sermons. I'm a coach by nature. Uh, my family, I come from a long line of coaches. So I did not go into teaching and coaching because I decided to go into the business world and mm-hmm. that's panned out pretty well for me. But I think if money was not a factor, and I can do whatever I want during the week. I would coach and on the weekend I would preach. And I think that sounds like a pretty good life. Interesting. I did not know that preaching fun fact about you. So see, I just learned something, something new. So thanks, Patrick. This is great, man. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you after this goes live? Yeah. So my direct contact information, if you, can I give out my cell phone? Is that okay? That's yeah, how I that, operate. Hey, if yeah, you so want the my, inbound calls, man, by all means. Absolutely. So my direct number is 512 512- Nine four five nine zero seven eight five one two nine four five nine zero seven eight, and my email address is patrick dot 
Hagen at stratatrust.com. That's P-A-T-R-I-C-K period H-A-G-E-N at strata, S-T-R-A-T-A, trust, T-R-U-S-T dot com. If they're looking for info on Stratatrust, stratatrustcompany.com is the, or stratatrust.com is the uh, website. You can check us out. I definitely encourage people if you're thinking about going this way and want to have a conversation, pair up with somebody that's been doing it for a while so we can kind of kick the tires, make sure it's a good fit for what you're trying to do. Even if you're not ready to pull the trigger yet, if you're just looking for information, give me a call, reach out. I'd love to have a chat and uh, be a resource. Awesome. Thanks, man. Well, Eric with an A, why don't you go ahead and close us out, sir? Heck yeah. I'll tell you what, Patrick, I I think I'd like your sermons. You gave a bunch of meat today. And when it comes to sermons, I want some meat. I want to be able to chew on something. And you were preaching today for sure. So thank you so much for being here. Malcolm, of course, thank you so much for being an amazing host and always getting such uh, wonderful guests. And our last thank you, of course, goes to you listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge, with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by top advisor marketing, Crowdmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening. The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Um...